we all live in a world where we strive to be better than we were yesterday. And one of these tools is, of course, being financially successful. And that striving pulls us forward, moves us forward, and is no bad thing. What is and can be bad is if that pull forwards becomes so excessive that it tips us into hyper arousal and stress. Mm. So in situations like that, even if we've learned that it is important, recalibrating the mind to recalibrate exactly where we draw the line, how much money becomes risky, how much or the lack thereof becomes risky. What is actually the worst that can happen if this particular financial goal target is not reached? Those are things we can calibrate in our heads with training, taking time with self-awareness, and by doing so, change the perception of the stress trigger. Born in 92 on the block with the sharks, cut from a different cloth, y'all would get ripped apart. You want a diamond, then you gotta get it in the dark. We dropping nuggets like Carmelo went to Rucker Park. Now we eating from state to state, we scrape the plate. I put my eggs in a basket, took a leap of faith. I took a chance, now we grow and see the impact. Decoding success with special guests, now let's bring Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. Matt Labrie here, your host of the top 1% globally ranked podcast, Decoding Success. You're rocking with us on episode number 246, where we are teaching you how to become, drum roll please, brrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrr
Whether you're a busy professional, an entrepreneur, a creator, life and work, it doesn't have to feel like that. Personally, for me, that has happened because no one ever taught me how to delegate. What to delegate, where to delegate, when to delegate, what was something I needed to do because only I could do it versus what something someone else could do for me because I didn't need to do that, right? There's so many factors. Now, luckily, I met a friend. Her name is Valerie Chapunsky, chief of staff for A-list celebrities, high, high-profile people with even higher net worths. She started a company called Chatterboss. Chatterboss is a one-stop shop for all of your delegating and outsourcing needs. And you might be saying at this point, well, Matt, I don't even know what I need to outsource. And here's the thing. Val and Chatterboss are hooking all of us up. Anyone tuned into this is getting a free 30-minute consultation. The reason I mention that is because when you work with Chatterboss, it is a true partnership. Chatterboss is there to support you. So if you don't know what you need to delegate or even just where you are, if you want to get your mind together around the project you're working on, around your business, around your podcast, around your blog, whatever it is. The Chatterboss team is there for you. Like I said, it is a true partnership. Again, they're giving away a free 30-minute consultation to anyone that's listening to this episode. I'm going to sprinkle on some more goodness here because anyone that's tuned into this right now is also going to get 15% when you sign up with Chatterboss. Now, keep in mind, Chatterboss is trusted by Google, Facebook, Reddit, and so many companies. Companies. I love them. I love Val and what she's created. It's absolutely incredible. So I really wanted to share that with you because I think it could help you become stress-proof. Now, with that being said, you could check them out in the show notes of this episode. And without further ado, we're bringing to you our friend, Dr. Mitu Steroni. Dr. Steroni, welcome to Decoding Success. Excited to have you here. Obviously, we're going to be talking a lot about stress today, which is something that we all encounter in life. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Now, I want to start off with a question that might, who knows where it's going to take us, but I'm really curious from your perspective, from your work, your research, everything you put out into the world, what do you feel like is something that gets overlooked pertaining to stress from an everyday person? I think the most striking thing is we don't know stress as what it actually is which is, it is an adaptation gap. What do I mean by that? I mean, it is the set of default responses your brain makes when it senses an adaptation gap between yourself and your current situation. The way in which we talk about stress and the way in the context in which stress is used, stress has become a almost a cliched term that is an umbrella for many, many subjective and objective scenarios, but which dilutes the actual point of stress, which is it is an adaptation gap response. And hence it is there as a tool, as a beneficial tool. It's only when we don't resolve that adaptation gap and the brain keeps pressing on those buttons that stress becomes negative because they mm. all those responses that the brain puts in place to help you to give you additional resources at that moment to make it easier for you to adapt those responses become non-linear and they have non-linear effects so i think that's the key thing that stress isn't just feeling frustrated or feeling tired or feeling emotional exhaustion all of those things are part of that spectrum but at its very basis Stress is an adaptation gap response. Interesting. So you talked about resolving that gap. What does that process look like? How do you resolve that gap? It depends on the context. 
But what the stress response does is we have throughout evolution encountered many such adaptation gaps. The adaptation gap can be the difference between your current speed as you're running away from a predator and the predator's speed. That is the adaptation gap you need to resolve because if you don't accelerate and adapt to this new speed and running faster, your existence will come to an end. So that is a temporary adaptation gap as an example that we've evolved to have to deal with. And that adaptation gap is resolved by your brain pressing on the stress response, which shunts more blood to your muscles, which raises your blood pressure, which protects you against microbes that may come in through your battle wounds as you're running away from the predator. So those are the typical responses that through evolution have saved us whenever we've encountered an adaptation gap. And those responses continue to be turned on today in the adaptation gaps that we encounter today, which are certainly not the ones we have evolved to be around. So currently the adaptation gaps we encounter are very much to do within the psychosocial arena, where our perception of a situation and what the reality is, or our perception of being able to be competent enough to deal with a situation and what the actual reality is. So that is a typical adaptation gap. So for instance, in today's urban tech-filled world, and I speak to you on Zoom while, while describing this, the adaptation gap can often be you are looking at a situation, your brain is overwhelmed with resources, its, its resources are overwhelmed, or rather it perceives its resources as being overwhelmed. At that point, the brain has to adapt to the current situation. So a stress response in that situation pushes all of these buttons. But for instance, one of the buttons it pushes is it releases, it causes a sudden spike in glucose in your blood, as an example, which is an evolved response. But in the current situation, if your brain thinks it's running out of resources, that arm of that response will temporarily give your brain a, a tool to help you cope with that situation and bridge the gap. So I think the problem that we have today is that the stress responses that we've evolved to have, the seven processes that I describe, those are responses that we've evolved to have. And the adaptation gaps that we encounter today are slightly different. So many of those processes that are consistently being pressed are not doing us any good and in fact could be doing us harm if they stay pressed. Absolutely. I'm really curious to learn where the link is potentially, and there might not be a link between stress and anxiety, right? Because the way that you're describing stress is the way I hear anxiety described when we talk about it on the show. It's it's not a bad thing. It's just maybe our body, you know, trying to protect us, right? It's a form of protection in a sense. And maybe it triggers at the wrong time in some cases, but I'm curious, where are the two linked, if at all? This is a great question because the two terms are often used interchangeably, which can confuse many people. So clinical anxiety is a clinical diagnosis, and I'm going to just step back a little bit from that and talk about anxiety in general and talk about what can be found in many people with anxiety. So I'm not referring to everyone with clinical anxiety, but I'm talking about a subset of people with what we would describe as anxiety. Many such anxiety sufferers have, for instance, as an example, have uncertainty intolerance or have higher uncertainty intolerance than someone who does not have anxiety. That's one angle to it. The second angle to it is if you look at the way in which the brain comes alive when you wake up from sleep and turns itself off again, we call that the whole period of waking up 
becoming more alert to the world around you as physiological arousal. So your cortical arousal, when your brain is roused from sleep, okay? And one of the neurological circuits that's behind this whole process is the noradrenergic circuit, which means that the circuit's main neuromodulator is norepinephrine or noradrenaline if you're in Britain. This neurotransmitter, which is actually a neuromodulator, as its release increases from one small part of the brain called the locus ceruleus, little blue dot, as this part of the brain becomes more and more active and this network becomes more and more active, it wakes you up first of all in the morning. So when you wake up in the morning, it becomes more active. And then during the day, whenever you're in a situation that makes you more vigilant or makes you more alert, even drinking several cups of coffee if you're not used to it. What these do is these increase activity in this noradrenergic circuit, leading in at its extreme, or rather not at its extreme, but towards its maximal end to a state which we call hyperarousal. Okay, hyperarousal, when your brain is extremely responsive and sensitive to what is taking place in the world around you. So you're very distractible, you are extremely vigilant for threats, you react prematurely, you cannot concentrate, you cannot focus, the smallest thing distracts you. And that state of hyperarousal is what many people with anxiety suffer from. Until that point, you don't have an actual physiological stress response, but your brain is just in an hyperaroused state. But at that point, the brain is very easy to tip over into acute stress. Because at that point, when it is this vigilant, if it really does encounter something, or if it is this vigilant because it's at the limit of its resources, and it's still firing itself up with caffeine, with deadlines, with threats, then at that point, it pushes on the acute stress button to help it. Because beyond that, it's almost as if it, it, it arrives at a barrier. So that's almost like the maximal activity level of the brain. So coming back to your original question, anxiety in people who suffer from, some people who suffer from anxiety, they tend to be in this state of hyperarousal more often than others and more easily than others. And it is much easier to tip into an actual physiological stress response from this point than it is, for instance, from a point of calm focus, or even from a point of very light daydreaming state of mind. So that is the, so there is some overlap. So when you are in an acute stress response, this noradrenergic circuit is very, very active, but it being active does not automatically trigger a stress response until it reaches a certain cliff edge. Now I'm going to make the wild assumption that there's no button that we can press to turn off hyperarousal. So how do we calm it down? Actually, your question is not really wild at all because we are now learning more and more about this state. We know, for instance, that there is an automatic nerve network within us called the autonomic nervous system with two arms, the fight or flight, sympathetic, and the rest and digest. The Two arms, there are actually three arms, but I've just described two. So these two arms are constantly pulling each other in opposite directions on a day-to-day, moment-to-moment basis. So one of them makes your heart beat faster, one of them calms you down consistently throughout the day. The state of hyperarousal is linked very closely to the fight-or-flight nervous reaction. And we know through ways in which we now are able to track 
our autonomic nervous system, such as many of your listeners will be aware of HRV, heart rate variability readings, and also other aspects of physiology and performance. They'd give us a clue about autonomic balance. And as a general rule, if your autonomic balance is shifted towards the sympathetic, it means you are teetering towards the state of hyperarousal. So anything that shifts you back, that raises your HRV, that shifts you towards the rest and digest mode, away from the fight or flight mode, will automatically lower your arousal in the majority of cases. So simple things like controlling breathing, so paced breathing, as is a very simple way. Other things include things that affect psychology and things that affect physiology. So cutting very simple things like cutting down on caffeine. So if you are such an individual who tends to have more anxiety or who tends towards becoming hypervigilant at the smallest trigger, someone like you, for some such person, then lowering caffeine intake, if you're not used to having a lot of caffeine as well, lowering caffeine intake, limiting caffeine intake, lowering other stimulants in that same context. These are some of the things that work. So very basically, shifting your autonomic balance away from sympathetic towards more parasympathetic helps. Of that. Now, when it comes back to stress, something came up for me when I was reading your book, Stress Proof. And I was really curious to learn if it was possible for, let's just say, our parents' stress or maybe our grandparents' stress to continuously be passed down to us, right? Is it possible for it to, you know, be transferred from generation to generation? So, this is another very interesting question whose answer is continuously evolving. There is now some data that suggests there could be epigenetic changes from one generation to the next, a sort of genetic memory, if you like, of trauma. But in situations like this, it's also very important to remember that your DNA and your genetic inheritance is only a small fraction of your existence. So how you live your life and the adjustments you make to your own physiology, the awareness that you have can overturn much of the legacy that you may or may not have as a result of previous trauma. Um, there is also some conflicting evidence that suggests that these epigenetic changes may not be significant. So that is an area of a lot of contention at the moment. But as things go, whatever your genetic legacy is, you can change that. So we're talking genetics there. I'm also curious to learn what about your conditioning, right? So for instance, if you grow up in a household where you listen to your parents I don't know, fight over money and when they need to pay the bills, right? Maybe we're conditioned to value money in a higher light. Or if you don't have money, you know, you feel some type of way. How much does that impact us? The environment, without any doubt, shapes your own response to your environment. So it's a two-way street. There is no doubt that going to an extreme so trauma as a child, as, a t as an adolescent, does have a significant effect on the way your stress physiology reacts to the world around you. Beyond that, the ideas that we have. So let, let me become step back a little bit. The triggers that we perceive as stressful, especially the psychological triggers, are very much trained responses. When you're a child, if the issue of money 
which is the case for most of us, is underscored and underlined and repeatedly emphasized as an essential tool for survival whose absence or in situations where if you don't have enough money, that situation is, we are trained to learn. It is a terrible, terrible threat. It is a terrible cue, which we absolutely have to avoid on all accounts. Then the idea of not having enough money, even in the imagination, becomes as frightening to ourselves as the idea of being chased by a tiger or by a mammoth elephant would have been to our ancestors a long time ago. So our idea of the world, and I think this is a, this is a very important issue because at the moment, psychosocial stress is the most important stress trigger to most of us living in an urban environment. There are, of course, some hunter-gatherer populations around the world, and for them, the context would be different. But in urban situations, psychosocial stress is the most important source of stress. And psychosocial stress is a kind of stress that exists around people. People, our culture, the way we live our lives, the way we are taught to live our lives, the way we learn to live our lives, the things we are told to value and taught to value. So given psychosocial stress has a huge component of perception, one of its main actors is the imagination, the imagination and the perception. Okay. So if you see a tiger, there is no question that it is a tiger and it's attacking you. But in more complex situations where you're interacting with other social players, other social agents, other people, things are not quite so clear. And there, your imagination is constructing a world where it deems a certain feature of your environment to be a threat. And these features, these cues, as you say, become learned. That actually provides a solution as well as posing a problem. If they stem from your imagination and they exist in your perception, then it is also possible to train your imagination and your perception to unlearn these things as threats. So coming back to your original question, we all live in a world where we strive to be better than we were yesterday. And one of these tools is, of course, being financially successful. And that striving pulls us forward, moves us forward, and is no bad thing. What is and can be bad is if that pull forwards becomes so excessive that it tips us into hyperarousal and stress. Mm. So in situations like that, even if we've learned that it is important, recalibrating the mind to recalibrate exactly where we draw the line, how much money becomes risky, how much or the lack thereof becomes risky. What is actually the worst that can happen if this particular financial goal target is not reached? Those are things we can calibrate in our heads with training taking time with self-awareness and by doing so change the perception of the stress trigger. Absolutely. I love this. Now, when you say that psychosocial is the most important, are you referring to it being the most prominent in what our culture and our society is experiencing today? It is the commonest source of stress Okay. in any society like ours that is relatively urbanized that revolves around people and concrete buildings rather than animals and plants and a high population density. So it is the commonest source of stress. 
do you think that, so I'm a millennial. Do you think that generations after millennials will, I guess, be impacted by this more or less? Because personally, I could speak from experience here. And I know that a lot of people that listen to the show can also speak on this. You know, I'll give you a silly example. I didn't think I was going to be successful unless I worked, sorry, unless I owned a business. Now, here's the thing I worked for an individual that was on Shark Tank, you know? So like that's, that's a really incredible job, a really incredible opportunity, but culture programmed me in that sense. So like, do you think things will improve and maybe improve isn't the best word, but I guess shift to create, you know, I guess a healthier aspect of life for generations to come after millennials? First of all, congratulations. That's a great achievement. <laughs> I think that the fact that we're having this conversation now makes a makes an enormous difference and is enormously significant because it suggests that we are recognizing the problem and the word stress is relatively new and if you go back 200 years it was already recognized that certain people living and working in a certain way were more prone to what was then referred to as neurasthenia which is an obsolete word now. Neurasthenia, I think at the time, meant this kind of depletion of nerve energy, which was the dominant opinion idea around at the time. So there were many physicians, many doctors at the time, 200 years ago, 200 plus years ago, who wrote and described in their notes and diaries how people who had office jobs, you know, around that time when in America you had the telegraph, you had railways, people started working in offices as businesses expanded. It was a very exciting time. But in parallel with this exciting time came this kind of mushrooming of conditions which were reported on in medical meetings in pretty much across Western Europe and America by equal amounts. And people noticed how, you know, this patient of mine, everything is perfect in their life, but this person just feels so gloomy every single day and nothing I do or recommend, no matter how much mercury, which was a treatment at that time, I give or all these other extremely toxic chemicals which were given during that time, no matter how much of these treatments I give, the patient is not working, the patients, you know, that the treatments are not working, what is it? And it seems to be correlated with what was described at the time as knowledge workers. So people who worked with their brains in dark rooms, no daylight, sitting on a chair, not getting out. So already 200 years ago, this was described. Then, of course, if you look at history, then you had the amazing phases of the Industrial Revolution, you had the 1920s boom, you had, you know, 4D in production, all of those things. And the world has been consistently changing and that change happened in spurts. But now we come to today where you describe as a millennial how you're wondering whether things are going to change. So even in your time, even here and now, we've made this huge transition to the imaginary world, to the virtual world. And we are talking about this once again. Why? Because as soon as you work in the virtual world, you are essentially bringing forward this tendency for work to go from the hands to the mind. It started 200 years ago. It's been continuing. And right now we're in a situation where it is exponentially growing. So much work is now becoming automated. Someone needs to do the automation, program the computers. So I think your question is very pertinent because we are at an unprecedented time where 
as things become virtual, as things go from the hands to the head, the mind has an unimaginably large cognitive load to bear. On top of that, we are living in an urban world. So I think that this is in many ways an inflection point, and that is why stress and mental wellness is being talked about so much. As we continue morphing our work world into one that exists in only in the mind, only within the, within cognition, we have to do something about it. Something's got to give. And I think that this is a point from where we are recognizing the problem and moving forward. Right. Right. I'm curious. You talked about, this strikes me because I know an individual that just put out a documentary. His name is Aubrey Marcus. He just put out a documentary on him staying in a dark room for like seven days, which was like an emotional journey for him. I haven't watched the documentary, but I'm curious, what's your take on things such as, you know, I guess natural ways to go about stress or coping with stress or anxiety or panic or depression, such as red light therapy or flotation therapy, or I have right here on my desk, I'm going to cover the brand because by no means am I endorsed by them. Ashwagandha, rhodiola, and things like that. Like, What's your take on that? Well, I think at the moment, living in the urban world that we live, our entire, the cues that we receive from the world around us with which we've evolved have as good as almost disappeared. So you take something very simple that I describe in my book as well as movement. Okay. So we now know that low intensity exercise, the equivalent of walking around your block, couple of times, lowers cortisol, okay? Whereas intense exercise raises it. When you're exercising intensely in the past, you would have been running away or running after something. You had an adaptation gap. You needed the burst of sugar. Hence, you needed a stress response. Hence the cortisol. But walking round around the block mops up that cortisol. Now, as over the last, I mean, you're a millennial, you say, but long before your time, long even before my time, life has been shrinking moving from the rural to the urban. So at the moment, the huge proportion of the world lives in an urban context, which means already the amount of moving you're doing is shrinking. Even within the room, when I was young, I would have to get up to answer the phone. I'd have to walk to the post office to send a letter. I didn't have email. So right now I can do all of that without moving. So we have eradicated movement from the majority of the day. And if you put two and two together, if in the past we had bursts of stress that raised cortisol levels, we quickly mopped that back away by moving. Now we live in a world where we've taken that movement away. We concentrate it all at the end of the day when we run at the gym or at the start of the day. But during the day, we've moved, we've completely eradicated that kind of vacuum cleaner of stress, that vacuum cleaner of cortisol. So we now have to reintroduce it by using these other methods. So that, you know, covers exercise. We mentioned light. Light is a very interesting, actually very, very interesting aspect of this. As I describe in my book, we are gradually learning. So, you know, through the reductionism of science and medicine, we at first reduced sunlight to just a source of vitamin D. Actually, that was later. It was also a source of UV light, which is bad and damaging. But as time goes on, we're learning and appreciating that something as fundamental as daylight or as sunlight is a potent source of infrared. And infrared light now is being used in the medical context. Most of it at the moment still in a research setting, but there is 
quite a lot of data beyond the research setting where it is being used. Also, you know about infrared saunas, you know about red light therapy and so on. So we are now appreciating that this red light, which we have shut our windows to, shut our blinds to all these years, kept ourselves covered from in fear, actually possibly has benefits. And I described data on cognitive performance, on some trials in Alzheimer's disease, and so on. So what you describe without being specific about it, you know, whether you talk about infrared light, whether you talk about saunas, whether you talk about sensory deprivation, all of these things, what they are essentially doing is returning us to our natural state or putting in something that we've taken out inadvertently. And they definitely have benefits. The infrared definitely has benefits. The degree of the benefit, we still don't quite understand and know in some contexts. In other contexts, we do know of benefits. So yes, so all these stress strategies that are around, some of them have less validation than others, but the basic principle is very important and very valid. We are putting back in what we took away. Another example is circadian rhythm. So for a long time, you know, after we had fire, we just had firelight in the evening. Okay. After we discovered fire, we just had firelight in the evening. So we had the warm glow of firelight of red light in the evening. Then of course, we're incredibly clever, discovered electricity, discovered light bulbs, even light bulbs. They, the original light bulb, tungsten uh, incandescent lights, they still had a kind of a red shifted glow. And then we got incredibly clever and created LED light, which is completely dissecting the different components of wavelength. And we now know, for instance, that we have receptors in the eye that are very specific to different wavelengths of light. We know that mitochondria, which exist in our eyes as well as everywhere else, are also very sensitive to certain wavelengths of light. Blue light, for instance, can be damaging to mitochondria. Red light seems to have, in some studies they show, it seems to have an anti-inflammatory and a positive effect. So we have been so clever and completely dissected the world and created an artificial kind of reduced artificial kind of state where we think we know everything and we've controlled it and calibrated it. And then suddenly we look back and think, oh, actually our reductionism has led to us shaving off so much that we didn't know about and hence didn't value. And now we have to add that back. This is so interesting. So it leads me to ask a question in regards to all of those modalities returning us to our natural state. Would you make the suggestion of telling someone, you know, and this is just an example here, but would you make a suggestion to someone to say, hey, you know, return to your natural state, move out of a city, move into a rural area, nature where you're around grass and trees, not these massive skyscrapers, and kind of come back to a more natural way of living versus what we've been accustomed to? Like I live in New York City, so I'm around these massive skyscrapers all the time. Would you make that suggestion? I think you need to take everything into account. So you have to have a very balanced perspective on your life. And if you're someone who's thriving and happy in the situation you're in, why change? You're doing great. If, however, you are going through a situation, a state of mind where whatever you do, you are still feeling taut and tense at the end of the evening, your sleep isn't great. Maybe you have health issues. Maybe you have your state of mind is just not where you want it to be. Maybe you've lost motivation. Maybe you're becoming weary. Maybe you can really, really tired, mentally, cognitively tired and fatigued. In that sort of situation, absolutely make a change, change your environment, make it temporary, recover, 
and return. And the temporary, you know, can actually be incorporated in your day-to-day life. So let me give you another little example. We talked about how do you change your brain state to make, to return from a state of hyper arousal to a state of calm focus. So one of the, one of the really intriguing studies that are out there show that doing something as simple as walking through a green area, so whether it's a park, whether it's a forest, immediately lowers your arousal levels. Why? The reason is, as you're walking through a forest, and it can be Central Park in New York, I'm sure you have other parks, but I don't know New York well enough, but it can be anywhere green, even in New York. If you're walking through a natural environment, every leaf hanging on the tree doesn't shout at you and say, hey, look at me. I want to grab your attention. Look, you have to be outraged. You have to be emotionally outraged. It doesn't drain you. It doesn't make you vigilant. So every leaf, you don't spend your time walking on in, through the park counting every leaf on the trees or counting every blade of grass if you're otherwise healthy. You do, however, if you're walking along a street in New York, if you're walking along, I don't know, any, any street in Manhattan, you know it better than I do. I'm sure you would encounter street signs, flashing lights, flashing adverts, honking cars, alarms everywhere, and then your phone will be beeping, which means that you are constantly getting told to be vigilant. Your attention, your alertness is constantly being re-triggered. So doing something simple if you live in a big city, as just taking a walk in the park for a couple of hours immediately lowers your arousal. And that just shows you how you can measure the way an environment changes the way your brain responds to the world around you. So if you lower your arousal after a walk in the park and you go back to your office or wherever you work, the same situation will suddenly seem very different to you. Right. Right. I love this. I'm curious, what's a question you wish more people would ask you and how would you answer it? There are so many questions I wish people would ask themselves. (laughs) (laughs) How are the question people would ask me more? I mean, I think the question I do get asked more is, and and maybe it should be asked even more, is how can we all, we are standing at a point where we are essentially at a cliff edge and we're watching ourselves go dive headfirst into a world with a deluge of information. We have information almost at saturation point that's coming into our daily lives. And we are, and when I say information, I mean salient information. So not, if you walk through a park, you're getting information. The green leaves are giving you information. The blades of grass are giving you information, but it's not salient information. We have created a world, synthesized, curated a world, which is absolutely saturated with sources of salient information that make you want to pay attention and process that information. And I think the question that people would perhaps do better asking is, what are they doing in preparation for the world that is coming? We've recently gone through two years of a lot of change. It's affected the whole globe in pretty much, you know, very similar way. And one of the things that has happened, certainly that I've observed, is many things have become more virtual. Many things have become more automated, which means the brain is having to cope with an increasing cognitive load. And this cognitive load is going to get heavier and heavier as we continue to progress. So what are we doing? In the past, if you were doing heavy lifting work in a construction site, you had a sign saying maximum load to be lifted is this. All right. You have to take a break after lifting this amount of load for this time. These were all laws which were put into the workplace when we did physical work. We currently have no laws that are put into our workplaces or even our personal office spaces when we're doing mental work. So what are we doing? 
to prepare for the world that we are entering and for what is to come. What should be, how should we prepare, right? Whether that be numerous ways, right? How should we prepare ourselves on a day-to-day basis in the morning, but not even that? How do we prepare ourselves to unwind? Because I've had numerous experiences where I've got home from work or even a, you know, a day of full of podcasting where my mind is just still going and I get into bed and you know I, I try to go to sleep. And although I, I fall asleep rather easily, my sleep is broken sometimes. So I'm curious, like, what should we do to prepare ourselves on a daily basis in the morning to prime ourselves for what's to come and then also to unwind for what we just experienced. So let's start in the evening first. Okay. I think at times like this, you have to go back or we have to go back to the mechanisms that we have evolved to have, to the brain that we have evolved to have. So one very striking thing about the brain is it thrives if there is novelty and stimulation, not excessive, but to some degree. And one of the ways in which you can introduce those is by incremental mastery. So by making yourself and hence making your brain better today than it was yesterday, learning something, even if it's something that doesn't naturally come to you. In fact, especially if it's something that doesn't naturally come to you, small steps forward. The reason I mention this is because detachment after work, after a day of work is one of the key factors that is recognized in a wide range of studies for resilience. So for performance the next day, for good sleep at the end of a day, and just for general mental well-being, detachment. And there are studies that have looked at what are the best kind of activities to do at the end of the day? Should you just flop on a sofa and just ruminate over how awful your day has been or how heavy your day has been and how miserable your life is? Or should you engage your mind and in some way, shape or form, be better now than you were this morning or be better now than you were yesterday. You can do it different ways. Some people do it by going to the gym and incrementally increasing lifting load. Some people do it by learning a new language. Some people do it by learning a new coding language. Some people do it by learning a new musical instrument. There are different ways and there are different things you can do, but incremental mastery is incredibly good for mental well-being. It also gives you a sense of achievement, self-confidence, which also provides certainty. It reduces the uncertainty of what is to come if you're more confident in yourself. And at the same time, it puts your brain in a really good state for resilience. So detaching at the end of the day is better done active rather than passive. And it's the same for going on vacations. There is data that suggests that if you are on vacation, yes, if you're physically fatigued, lying on the beach is great. But if you're more mentally fatigued, then when you're lying on the beach, you'll still be thinking of your chair back home. At that point, actually going on vacation and doing something active, even if you're not on vacation, doing something very active that actively engages your brain over the weekend or whenever you have time free, that helps you detach. So that's probably the most important piece of advice I'd say for the end of the day is do something so absorbing that A, you forget about what happened an hour ago when you were at work and B, that makes you better today than you were yesterday. That said, by the time you come to the end of your day, there are other things you can do. So what you describe as feeling very wired at the end of the day, you fall asleep, but it's fragmented. You still feel that your brain hasn't quite switched off. That is actually a sign of hyper arousal. 
Right. In order to reduce that, you do all the things that physiologically kind of tap you away from sympathetic dominance to parasympathetic dominance. And I've described lots of ways in my book, but there are things such as absolutely avoid blue light in the evening. And dif- different people uh, recommend different things, ideally for a couple of hours, ideally several hours. If you're living near the equator from sunset, essentially, so go along with the sun. But I know if you're living very north of the equator, you have to adjust your daytime and nighttime hours. But essentially avoid blue light. Blue light is alerting. Avoid bright light before you go to sleep for several hours before you go to sleep. No bright light, no blue light, no excitement. Excitement increases your physiological and cortical arousal. Reduce excitement. So bright light is exciting. Noise, sound, emotional interchanges. So if you're speaking to someone about something very emotional, that will raise your arousal level. Also activity. If you're exercising, if you do very intense exercise before you go to sleep, that can leave you in a state of hyperarousal if you haven't relaxed and calmed down afterwards. So in the evening, do everything that tilts you the opposite way. So no excitement, no blue light, no bright light, and eat very early. And this is all after you do some kind of detaching activity that makes you better today than you were yesterday. In terms of the morning, preparing for the day, I would say that you need to know what your own physiology is like. What what are you like as a person? Are you someone who needs excitement to function? Because some people are. Some people need that level of stimulation to get to a point where they feel alive and they feel like they're performing at their best. For others, they need a small amount of stimulation to be at their best, but they get overstimulated and they kind of shift towards a hypervigilant state at the very, very small, with a very small cue. So you need to know how your own mind, how your own brain performs. And if you find that your own and that you are someone who is very, very sensitive, who gets hypervigilant and anxious very easily, then in your case, when you wake up in the morning, don't have the coffee, use the environment to wake you up. Mm. So the noise of the traffic will wake you up. If you walk into your office and everyone is moving fast, talking loudly, shouting orders, deadlines looming, that will wake you up and do what your coffee would have done. So cut down on the coffee and use your environment. If you're someone who wakes up feeling anxious, then do something first thing in the morning to calm yourself down. For instance, go for a low-intensity exercise or run. Go through nature. Enjoy walking the park. Watch the sunrise. These are such small, cliched things, but we now know that they do bring benefits. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love this. I know that I only have you for a few more minutes, so I just want to let everyone know that I am going to have the link to Stress Proof in the show notes of this episode, as well as socials, websites, and all of that good stuff. But where do you hang out most on social? Is it LinkedIn? I'm usually on Twitter, Twitter, Twitter. and LinkedIn. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. LinkedIn. I'm going to make I sure post, that all of- I post studies on Twitter. So anything interesting that comes up, go straight on there. Awesome. Awesome. I'm going to make sure that I have all links in the show notes for socials, websites, book, and all of that good stuff. But I'm curious, I'm going to squeeze one last question out of you here. You gave us, I mean, my notebook is full, literally full (laughs) from front to back here. I'm curious to learn if you could only be remembered for one piece of advice. You live to whatever year you want to live to. You put out as much research. You write as many books. You hop on as many stages. But you could only be remembered for one piece of advice. What would that be? Be kind to your brain. <laughs> be kind to your brain. Okay. Be kind is- to your brain. What does it mean? It means 
we need to appreciate that the brain is the new workhorse of our time. And we've spent the last 100 years, 150 years, almost 200 years, focusing on how do we become more efficient in the body and how do we reduce trauma to the body, physical trauma from doing work. So during assembly line work, you had Henry Ford, you had Taylor, who was going through how do you create a body that's efficient for work, but at the same time isn't worn out. So right now we have to look at the brain as the new body and rather than look at it as oh, how do we make it more efficient for work alone? We have to look at it as how do we reduce, how do we reduce occupational injury to the brain? That is super powerful. I'm sure that we could go down many more routes of questions here, but Dr. Steroni, I just wanted to say thank you for the opportunity to amplify your message, make an impact with you on decoding success. Again, I'm going to make sure that all of the links to books, websites, socials, all that good stuff is in the show notes, but thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And there you have it, everyone. You have just tuned into the Decoding Success podcast featuring Dr. Steroni. Now, as I mentioned in this episode, you can find her social medias, her website, and where you can get her book known as Stress Proof, all in the show notes of this episode. I personally am going through the book Stress Proof right now, where I've been reading, reading, reading. I have a million and one questions outlined here. My highlighter has totally ran out of ink. I have notes on almost every single page. It is an incredible book. I get absolutely nothing for putting you onto this, except for the fact that it could impact your life. And if you want to reach out to me and say, hey, I grabbed that book. I would love to have a chat with you about it. And if you want to get in touch with Dr. Steroni, you know, where to do so. As I mentioned, it's in the show notes of this episode. Beyond that, again, I want to urge you to make sure that you're sharing this with people in your life because stress is absolutely inevitable, right? How we perceive it may change and how we tolerate it may change, but stress and the factors of stress are out there in this world and we can't control every single thing. So I'm just throwing it out there. Make sure that you're sharing it with at least two people in your life, not three, not one, two. Two is a different number than three and one, so I'm going with two. And until next time, everyone, be blessed. Peace.